Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Stacy Gray and Dr. Eric Holbrook about their article, Prophylactic Antibiotics After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery, a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, non-inferior clinical trial. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Q4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. Sarah Wise, and today I'm joined by two fantastic and very well-respected rhinologists from the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston, Dr. Stacy Gray and Dr. Eric Holbrook. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having us. So today we'll be discussing your recent paper, Prophylactic Antibiotics After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery, a Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Non-Inferiority Clinical Trial. Congratulations on the publication, and again, thank you for joining me to discuss the work. This is clearly a topic that many otolaryngologists and rhinologists, as well as residents and fellows in training, can relate to. I suspect that we've all seen various different regimens for post-sinus surgery antibiotic use over the years from our faculty during training, our partners in practice, and likely variations in our own post-operative medication patterns. So thanks for addressing this topic head on, first of all. And why don't we start by one of you discussing why you wanted to undertake this study? I'll start with that. Is that okay, Eric? Yeah, go for it. All right. So um, I think, you know, one of the things that just from being in practice and it's wonderful to actually, Eric and I share a clinic together on Fridays. Well, not during COVID, but usually we do. And one of the things just over the last 15 or 16 years of being in practice is that I feel like we learn so much by just being in the clinic space and sort of talking about patients and talking about cases. I had sort of been trained to just treat prophylactically with antibiotics for a week after sinus surgery. And Eric did not. Uh, just from his training. And so we had sort of this difference in the way that we were normally doing things. I realized just after being there for a while, I sort of started thinking about it and started actually changing my own practice. So I wasn't just routinely doing that. And so it was something that in our patient population, especially here in Boston, I think people are very motivated actually to avoid antibiotic use in general and really sort of question taking antibiotics in a large proportion of our patients. And as with any question, it's one of those things if we are able to actually objectively answer it especially for our patients and be able to discuss it with them in the context of really having information about it, it would be really useful. So I think for a lot of the things that we've done, whether it's changing from using packing to not using packing or changing the amount of post-operative narcotic prescriptions that you use after sinus surgery, I think just the idea that you can potentially modify things as you're in practice and especially as you look at these questions can really be helpful. So I think that was 
really sort of the primary motivator for us. Coming from a, a residency program where we use prophylactic antibiotics on everyone and then doing my fellowship with Don Leopold that slapped my hand every time I wanted to write a prescription, it was eye-opening. And I think they're also, uh, just to add to what Stacy is saying, I think there might be regional differences like throughout the United States and how you're trained. And the fact that some of these things that we would do in training with packing and things like that, that maybe you don't have to do or you change your preference for using, then some of the other things like antibiotic use might not be needed anymore. But that brings up a whole question of whether or not antibiotics are needed in the background of packing, which is a separate study that should be done. (laughs) Well, you both bring up great points. And I have to say that this paper has made me think back to how I trained as well and how things have changed for me over the years. And I, when I think back to my residency, I remember writing so many prescriptions as I sat in the OR for Leviquin and prednisone and how things have changed since that time. I really appreciate you guys taking this on. So at this point, maybe we could have just kind of a brief overview of the study design and what you found in your results. In the most simplistic form, we really just wanted to see if there was any difference in appearance of infection after surgery, whether you use antibiotics or not. We definitely wanted to do it in a um, placebo-controlled blinded fashion, but we also realized that to do that study with a primary endpoint of infection would require an enormous amount of patients. So we had to have an endpoint that was more realistic, such as symptom scores. So we chose SNOT-22. And we wanted to see with SNOT-22 whether or not there was a difference in outcomes after one week and after the second post-op period, which would be six to eight weeks or so. And in addition, then we would also look at number of post-op infections that might occur. So, I mean, that was the background behind it. Getting into non-inferiority and and things like that is very kind of detailed for uh, statistics and design of studies. Truthfully, I mean, that's what you're looking for when you're looking to see if something is needed or not. You're not looking for a benefit of a medication. You're looking for whether or not there's no difference. And that's why the non-inferiority type of study is what we eventually went with. So the findings basically were that uh, looking at several endpoints, the SNOT-22 score did not seem to differ in terms of the amount of improvement because everybody improves after surgery. The amount of improvement after one week and after eight weeks was not different in the placebo group compared to the antibiotic group. In addition, the endoscopy scores that we also looked at did not differ between the two groups. And in terms of infection, there was no difference in rates of infection in the post-op period. So you did find, though, that there was a difference in side effects, which perhaps is not unexpected, but your antibiotic group seemed to have quite a bit more GI disturbance and diarrhea. Yes. Do you think that that was specifically related to the antibiotic choice of amoxicillin clavulanic acid, or do you think you would have seen that with just about any antibiotic that you chose? I think with amoxicillin clavulanic acid, I think there is a higher, if you, if you look at the papers out on that, it definitely adds more diarrhea. We chose that because it's a common prescribing antibiotic that's used. And a lot of prior studies 
similar to what we did, also used the same antibiotic. We also wanted to stay away from any type of antibiotics that also provide an anti-inflammatory effect because that would have confounded it to some degree. We were a little bit stuck in that fashion. And yeah, the rates may have been less, but I mean, it's pretty significant difference between the two for a common antibiotic that most of us use. Right. So yeah, definitely more side effects in the antibiotic group. That's an important difference, I think. This was a very rigorously designed study. It had quite a number of exclusion criteria. And I think that we all strive to design the the perfect clinical trial. But I, I did wonder as I looked at all of these different exclusion criteria that were listed in the paper. And just for our listeners, reasons that the patients were excluded were if they were under 18 years of age, allergy to medication that was prescribed, or similar medication, systemic antibiotic treatment within one week before the surgery, cystic fibrosis, immunodeficiency, pregnancy, adonogenic sinusitis, complicated sinusitis, fungal ball, infected mucosal, non-endoscopic sinus surgery, active sinus infection, intraoperatively, any intraoperative complication or any foreign body placement. So that was quite a few exclusion criteria. And ultimately, um, the numbers that were recruited in the study, the number of patients enrolled did not quite reach the predicted power analysis. Do you think that the strictness of the inclusion criteria may have affected your ability to enroll the number of patients you were looking for? So I don't think so. I think really the reason that that happened was patients declined to be included in the study because they did not want the possibility of being treated with antibiotics. Because the majority of patients still that you would, in a, in a general practice or even in a rhinology practice, all of our CRS with polyp patients for the most part qualified for this unless they had an active infection, which is fairly rare. And even CRS without polyps, unless they had really active, significant purulent secretions were also included. So the, the majority of patients, I would say that we were offering surgery to, we obviously offered this trial to all of them. And a large portion of my patients, I would say in general said, no, thanks. I do not want, I don't want to have even the chance of taking an antibiotic. I don't, Eric, did you find that that was the case for you as well? Yeah, that was one of the things that I was very surprised about when we were conducting the study, that this kind of public awareness is much higher than I expected in terms of using antibiotics for medical reasons, you know, and surgical reasons. So I was fairly astonished and it was extremely frustrating <laughs> because it, it did have such an impact on us to be able to enroll patients. We did lose enrollment, you know, like during the surgery also, because all the chronic rhinosinusitis patients, the ones that have significant disease, are going to have some type of discolored drainage. So it, it brings up the question of what is pus or what is infected material and whether or not that infected material is pathogenic in causing symptoms in a non kind of just inflammatory type of role. I don't think anybody's really been able to answer that. We tried to define it in our paper based on, you know, you have to have a discolored drainage, but you should have erythema or redness underlying that inflammation as part of your assessment of whether or not you think it's infectious. Those are for patients that we were in the operating room with. So they had consented to the study. And then at the time of the surgery, 
you would find, you know, as you always do, some mucus that was there. So trying to decide whether or not you were concerned enough that it, it could represent infection. And we definitely had some patients that that was part of the reason that they ended up being excluded from the study because of that. The interesting thing is that often in those cases in real life, what I would do is treat with something that actually has an antibiotic that has an anti-inflammatory property. So I, I wouldn't necessarily put them on Augmentin, but we didn't feel comfortable including those patients in the trial. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, I think really trying to figure out sometimes if you're dealing with an infectious process versus just inflammation associated with some discolored drainage. It's the line is not necessarily always clear. I'm also really interested in your comment about people being reticent to join the study because of the possibility of an antibiotic. And I, I do think that there's, there probably are regional differences. And I have to say, if, you know, if we were doing the exact same study here in the Southeast or, you know, in my area, I'm not so sure that we would have such a a high number of patients who would decline the study for that that particular reason. That's we have we have patients that come in with like a lot of questions about their microbiome and and that they've already been on a million antibiotics. There's I would say there is a we it probably is a different patient population would be my guess. I would imagine so. We certainly do have some patients that decline antibiotics or want to try other measures for, you know, a significantly longer period before they end up on antibiotics. But I can't say that that's the majority of patients that, that we end up seeing here. So it was um, funny because they would say things like, I'm really glad you guys are doing this. So other people don't have to take an antibiotic, but I don't want to be part of the trial uh, because I don't want to take an antibiotic. Yeah, that is you. so interesting. Yeah. That is so interesting to me. Back to the discussion of not necessarily fulfilling the numbers that you anticipated. And yet, you know, you have some results that you've been able to draw some conclusions from. So can you talk a little bit about the interpretation of your results and what you think this study has provided for the the larger otolaryngology and rhinology community? It kind of comes down to a power analysis, basically. And we strove to get a specific power analysis, but because of our difficulty enrolling patients, we were climbing in terms of how much time it was taken to end the study, the whole study. So it was getting on five years and we started worrying about just that in general, having a confounding influence on potentially on the results and how you practice medicine and how things change over five years. We didn't want to fall into that trap. So we just decided to close the study, getting closer at least to the um, numbers that we wanted to accrue and look at power two with the resulting number of patients that we had, which came out to be, I think, around like 82% or something like that. So if you're looking at strict numbers, then can we definitively say that the use of no antibiotics is not inferior to the use of antibiotics? It, could, it again, depends on how you want to power that, right, that statement. And I feel like 82%, we're, we had enough evidence, it was pretty significant evidence that there was no difference between the two groups. We were very careful about who we entered into the uh, study so that, you know, we, we were actually probably more conservative and not having people with infection. And I think the resulting data really pushes 
or supports other data out there that suggests that you really don't need to use antibiotics in the post-op period if there's no sign of an infection in your patients. Realize one thing we should state just for the details of the paper, and we still do this, is that we're, we're talking about post-op antibiotics, but the, on the day of the surgery, everyone does receive a dose of IV antibiotics, so just sort of standard antibiotic dosing for any surgery. I just want to make sure people do know that that is part of the protocol. But right. And that we, was provided to everyone, correct? Correct. Yeah. And just, and that's part of our standard practice right now for, for everyone. But that itself is also an interesting thing to look at, which would be considered, I guess, prophylactic antibiotic on the day of surgery, one-time dose, which isn't really being supported by guideline type of societies and the infectious disease people for usually including all different types of surgeries, but clean contaminated fields also. They are suggesting or pushing away from using an antibiotic at the start of surgery. I've noticed that in recent years in our inpatient hospital, they have kind of a big chart and the instances that we do just a standard endoscopic sinus surgery there, they'll, they will often say that the anesthesia personnel will say, there's no antibiotic indicated for this procedure. Is there a reason that we should be giving something? You're right. The evidence does not necessarily support that preoperative intravenous initial dose of antibiotics. So I'd like to hear from each of you now that you've sort of gathered the evidence, previous evidence, you've contributed to the new evidence. Now, can you each tell me what we should be doing with regard to post-operative antibiotics after endoscopic sinus surgery, assuming this is kind of, as you've described, an uncomplicated case. And then what are each of you doing now in your practice? So I'll start. I really do think that for our standard patients and sort of the classic patient that I'm thinking of is a patient with CRS with polyps and you do the surgery and it's overall very uncomplicated. There's not anything that looks infected. There's not anything that really looks like anything other than just thick mucus that's sort of trapped in the sinuses. And I think that's the opportunity to not treat patients with post-op antibiotics. So, and I, and I, I don't do that in my own practice. And I think overall, we really do not need to do that. And the other caveat actually that I should mention that we didn't say at the beginning is that all of our patients, we don't have packing or any kind of eluding implants or anything like that in our cases. And so I don't use packing and I don't typically use those like any kinds of stents or anything like that, which would obviously change how you look at this. But for those patients, I think the fact that they're irrigating very frequently the fact that you're going to see them, you know, within a week after the surgery to do a debridement, you have plenty of opportunity to potentially catch concern for an infection for a post-op infection, which is very, very rare. And then I think as far as the outcome, I, I really don't think it changes anything to have patients on antibiotics perioperatively. And so I, I would prefer to avoid that for our patients because I think they comply with it better. They definitely have less side effects if they're taking less medications. And that is what I do as a standard in my practice. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, just from our study alone was 70 something people enrolled only two, two or three were felt to have an infection in the post-op period. 
mean, that's quite a considerable percent of patients that you avoided using antibiotics on that could either cause a temporary GI problem or you know, at worst, it could have been an allergic reaction or something like that. I mean, we all know the side effects and the possible risks of, of people on antibiotics. You really cut that down. And um, prior studies or prior papers have shown that antibiotics is one of the most litigious areas of medicine that you fall into, and antibiotics being one of the most common prescribed medications that we give. So you might be actually putting yourself at more risk by prescribing antibiotics on all your patients than by reserving antibiotics. Thank you both. Any final thoughts about this study or post-operative antibiotics use in general? Clinical studies are hard and expensive. <laughs> I can say that. This wasn't even a complicated clinical study, you know, a clinical uh, trial, but doing it in a randomized, blinded way in following the guidelines of, you know, the government's uh, requirement to um, put it on their website. There's a lot of work associated with, with any of these studies. It's the way to do it, though. You know, you have to do it right to be able to come up with a conclusion. And even trying to do that for us, we ran into problems where, you know, you might say that we can't give a definitive statement at the end. It's not easy, but it's what's needed in our field, I think. Well, thank you both for your incredible work. So again, I'd like to thank Dr. Stacy Gray and Dr. Eric Holbrook for their time and insight as we discuss their recent IFAR publication, Prophylactic Antibiotics After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery. This was an excellent study with clear clinical applications to the majority of the otolaryngology and rhinology practice. And I thank you all for joining me for this discussion. I thank our listeners for joining us for another episode of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. Be well. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 